Friends, welcome to Leadosophy. Got a great interview coming up here. Dr. Lindsay Harris. She's a pharmaceutical doctor at Mission Hospital in Asheville, North Carolina. Had a great interview with, with Dr. Harris. We talked about everything from her time going through pharmaceutical school at uh, Purdue University. We talked about her time on the rowing team with Purdue. We talked about her being an educator, a mentor, a leader, a manager within the hospital system, all the different service lines that she is a part of, the different team dynamics that she's a part of. It was a really fascinating interview. We get into intrinsic motivation, extrinsic motivation, just a lot of fun. Really enjoyed it. I think you're going to really like this one. Remember, you're here with an open mind because that's the rule, not the exception. Here we go, Dr. Harris. Are you ready to permanently fuse leadership and philosophy? Then a word of caution. You are about to enter the fully abstract yet wholly concrete realm of leadosophy. Our ideas are not always so clear and distinct. To validate this proposition, we welcome the host of Leadosophy, Tim Wood. All right. Welcome to Leadosophy. Lindsay, Lindsay, Dr. Lindsay Harris is here with an open mind because that's the rule and not the exception. Uh, Dr. Harris, I am I'm excited for this one. I know there's a few people excited for this one. <laughs> I am repping Purdue swag. If you're watching on YouTube, you can see the Purdue swag. Boiler up. Dr. Harris grew up in Indianapolis, Indiana, from the Midwest, like myself and my wife, also from, she's from Indiana. Went to Purdue University, rowed for Purdue University, was a rower, and a coxswain. You were a coxswain, right? I was coxswain. Yeah, I, I didn't get to row very often. Okay. So, yeah. Okay. So, there's a difference, right? Coxswain and rower. I got yeah. you. Yes. I, we, we can talk about that later. Uh, graduated with a doctorate. Of pharmacy, right from the Purdue from the Purdue University, the sc School of Pharmacy <laughs> and Pharmaceutical Sciences in two thousand five. You did some postgraduate work, a couple different institutions, right, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. then spent six years at John Hopkins mm -hmm. as a clinical pharmacy specialist in the surgical intensive care unit. Yeah. Um, currently, you work at Mission Hospital in Asheville, North Carolina. Now, for the audience out there, you hold, you hold multiple titles. So, so my first question for you is if you are walking the streets of Asheville and a random person asks you what you do and what's your title, mm -hmm. what do you say? I tell them I'm a pharmacist. <laughs> Just a pharmacist, that's it? Just a pharmacist, yeah. Okay, you don't go into the title, different titles you hold it. No. A, there's a lot there. You, I, there I don't is, unpack yeah. a lot of stuff. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I got so, some letters behind my name and you do. And yes. I, I, the farm D obviously I knew the farm D, but the BCC, mm -hmm. I had to look up the BCCCA. BCCCP. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Board certified. What's that spell? Critical that? care pharmacist. Critical care pharmacist. Mm -hmm. And that's your like license, right? So that's an additional certification. So, uh, you know, um, actually when I was going to Purdue, I was in the, I was in the last class that could choose to graduate from Purdue with a bachelor's degree in pharmacy. Um, there was a big push nationally in pharmacy schools, probably within the decade that I had started pharmacy school, to shift everyone to the doctorate and to really 
um, push for a, a, a slightly longer um, program to really uh, immerse all students into a full year of um, clinical and um, on-the-job training before you would graduate. So that was the main difference between the bachelor's degree and the doctorate was a bachelor's was three years of professional school. And um, it's like at Purdue, you could have gotten into pharmacy school after just two years of undergraduate. And then you could have gone through the bachelor's program, which would have been a three-year program versus the doctorate, which was a four-year program. So, so they no longer do the, bat- the bachelor program? It's right. gone. Mm-hmm. It's, it's gone. completely gone. Yeah. So there are no pharmacy schools that do bachelors. Now there are a couple of carve outs because there was like, there were students that were basically when the doctorate and the bachelors were both available, there were students that basically threatened the schools to, to sue them mm-hmm. because they were hindering their ability to sit for the licensure exam, even though they had completed the curriculum to have a bachelor's degree. So now that's, that's sort of a moot point, um, because every school only does doctorates, but, um, but yeah, you could have done a bachelor's degree. And so then folks who only have the bachelor's only have the bachelor's a lot of times would put R a capital R capital P lowercase H. So registered pharmacist, almost like an RN. Um, but really PharmD and RPH is sort of a duplicative Sure. Set of letters to put behind your name. So, um, but you could be a PharmD and not be licensed as a as a practicing pharmacist because um, you do have to you have to sit for a national board exam. Like so, that's the NAPLEX, and then in whatever state you want to work in, you have to get licensed by taking their law exam as well. I gotcha. So it's it's a lot. I mean, there's a lot of different moving parts mm-hmm. for, yeah. for your profession. Yeah. Right. And so then you can get a board certification. So that's what the extra letters are. So the original one was just board certification of pharmacotherapy, Mm -hmm. um, which is a very broad um, certification. And over the years, they've started to add additional board certifications that focus in on on specialties. So I would say um, the BCOP was probably the first specialized area, which is for oncology um, pharmacists. And then um, in the last 10 years, even shorter than that, maybe 10 years, they've really started to add some additional ones. So now there's um, board certification for critical care, pediatrics, um, psych. Um, they're talking about doing an ER-specific one. Um, pain and palliative care has petitioned for one. Um, cardiology, I think. So there are a lot of different specialties. A lot of different that specialties. Just, Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's stick with the theme of, of pharmaceutical work. Mm-hmm. I've always been curious. I've actually never asked you this and mm-hmm. I, I've known you a long time. Right. <laughs> Full disclosure, my wife, you, and my wife went to college together. You guys, mm-hmm. you know, were on the road rowing team together. Mm-hmm. Um, where she did you ride or die? Yeah. The ride or die. <laughs> That's funny. Would she know that ride or die? Would she know that? She would know she's my ride or die. Yeah. I gotcha. <laughs> where did your pet, what drove you into that field? Of, mm-hmm. of pharmaceutical work what mm-hmm. inspired mm-hmm. you yeah um so i don't have anybody in my family that's in healthcare, and really um so going into college i'm gonna go way back right yeah. so i only applied to three schools when i was in high school i applied to purdue i applied to iu 
um, and I applied to um, UNC. And because my dad lived in North Carolina. So yeah. um, so I applied to UNC under the, I guess, thought process that I should qualify for in-state. And UNC is very competitive for out-of-state um, applicants. But since my dad had an address here and has lived here forever, I figured, well, I'll be considered in-state. And then Purdue and IU are my backups. So really going into college, I figured if I went to Purdue, I would go to veterinary school and do a pre-vet undergraduate degree. And if I went to uh, UNC, I would probably do sports medicine because um, they had a really strong sports medicine um, program there. And um, so I didn't get into UNC. They decided that I was not, I would not qualify as an in-state resident. And so I did not get in there and I was left either going to Purdue or IU. And um, being, um, before me, there were 11 people in my family who had gone to Purdue. And so my grandmother basically told me like, you can't go to IU or I'll never talk to you again. <laughs> oh, are you serious? That's funny. And so, and really, I mean, everybody, I, I went to a huge high school and it seemed like everybody I was graduating with was going to IU also. And so I thought, I don't want to just go and basically rehash high school in Bloomington, Indiana. Right. Like that's not really what I want either. Um, and I really thought I wanted to be a veterinarian. So that seemed like the most appropriate path. So go to Purdue, declare my major as biology, get into biology classes and hate them. And I'm like, why am I learning about plants? I don't yeah. like it. Um, and so I dropped my biology class and I was like, now what am I going to do? Um, and started to sort of investigate where, what I could do. And honestly, like my mom, she was like, oh, Purdue has a pharmacy school. Like you could be a pharmacist. You're, you're good at science. You like that sort of thing, you know, but you like talking to people and pharmacists, pharmacists are nice. They talk to people. <laughs> <laughs> I've never, I've never met a not nice pharmacist. Right. They're me. the That's most true. trusted healthcare professional in oh, the U S you know? So is that I, real? Is that legit? Is that like yeah, a statistic? Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Dropping and knowledge bombs on lead Look at like that, that. You know? Yes. So I just, um, I really didn't know much about it, but I thought, okay, this is in line with my, like my strengths, science, math, um, you know, it, it didn't require some, you know, a lot of crazy courses. And I was, I was already kind of taking the prerequisites that I would need to get in anyway. So, um, I went to my admissions counselor and I said, Hey, what classes do I need to do? And she was like, you're going to have to take that bio class you dropped. But, really? yeah. um, yeah. So pick that up the next summer. And, um, Met a girl who worked in a local pharmacy, like a little retail pharmacy. It was a family-owned place. And so she helped me get a job there. And I just kind of, you know, worked a, a few hours a week, really, and um, sort of got to understand what that was like and um, got into pharmacy school. I mean, I tell people now, because I work with so many students and so many residents, and I'm like, do as I say, not as I did, because it is just... What do you mean? Unpack? Yeah, unpack that. What's that mean? I mean, I just, I, there was not much of a, I'm like, I'm a, I'm a kind of a planner, but not a huge planner, but I have just, I have gotten lucky. Things have fallen into place for me and I don't, and, and it's not that it's because I didn't try and I just got lucky, but like things have to align for it all to work out. And so, I mean, I, I started to meet people from other pharmacy schools and like, it was a little bit, there's like this 
polite um, co competition between Purdue and Butler, right? An another pharmacy school that's based out of Indianapolis. And you get into your fourth year of, uh, of rotations and you end up interacting with students from other schools. And so Butler students would be like, well, what was your P PCAT score? And that's kind of like the MCAT or the, I don't know, GRE, right? Or It's a big something. deal. It's a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. So Purdue didn't require PCAT. I was like, what's a PCAT? <laughs> like, I just, I didn't even know because it wasn't like I was applying to all of these schools. I was like, I'm going to try and get, get into Purdue's pharmacy school. And if that doesn't work out, then I guess I'll try something else. <laughs> like, yeah, right. I just, I was kind of like, yeah, let's try this. So I didn't really know what I was getting into and got in and, and it was hard. I mean, academically, I always performed well. I was like an AB student in high school, right? Um, I didn't have to apply myself to complete exhaustion, but I had to work pretty hard to get those grades. And I got into college and realized really quickly, I didn't really know how to study and I didn't, um, I, I just you had to it, change your whole mental model. Once yeah. You college, and yeah. so getting into pharmacy school was like a whole new beast. I mean, it was a ton of biochem and med chem and it was intense work. Right. And so I, I struggled scholastically the first two years of pharmacy school. And I just, but I also, I was on the rowing team and for the first year I was in a sorority and I was trying to juggle all these other things and like, wait, were you on the rowing team when you were going to pharmacy school? Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah. Wow. I didn't know so that. my first two years of pharmacy school, I was on the rowing team. Yeah. So, so was it your last two years of your undergrad and then your first two years of pharmacy school? Well, so at, so you don't have to have an undergrad to go to pharmacy school. Oh, okay. That's Some schools that's are right. changing yeah. that. So yeah. I was that's able right. to get all my prereqs in in two years. So that's then right. I okay. got in as basically a third year student at Purdue. Okay. Yeah. But then it took I'm me five just years traditional to get, four years. It's just, sure. Yeah. yeah. So, so, and it should have taken me four years to get through pharmacy school, but it took me five years. So, um, so that first year was a, a big, a really big struggle for me, um, academically. And so I, I sat out one semester, basically a pharmacy school curriculum. It took a bunch of electives because I had to wait to retake, um, immunology. And I went ahead and I retook a med chem, uh, a biochem class as well. So in that kind of semester off, um, where I just got a bunch of elective credits in, um, it was actually really good for me. I think, um, really kind of mentally, right. Because I was down and I was like, man, maybe I'm not cut out for this and maybe I'm not smart enough. And I went and did some, um, kinesiology courses and I did like a women's health class and I'm trying to think what else I did. I think I did a communications class. Active and, um, did you have, you had a lot of self-doubt your first year or two? In I did. Yeah. yeah. I even had, I mean, my, I remember my dad saying he didn't think I could do it. Yeah. Like my, my biologic father was like, I don't know if you're cut out for this. Yeah. And, um, and so I think that between that and like taking a little bit of a break and like breezing through those other courses, it like was eye opening to me to say, okay, I can do this but I'm going to have to really focus like this curriculum is really hard and I've got to figure out how to make it work and how right. to connect the dots, you know? And, um, 
And so, I mean, it was, it was really good. And, um, but I remember sitting back and I heard about residency early on in school and I was like, who are these weirdos that sign up for residency? Like when you get out, I mean, at that point in time, there were flyers that you would see all the time for different chain pharmacies, trying to get people out to these remote areas, paying like crazy sign on bonuses. You could get a car and I mean, you're making a fortune and, you know, and so part of me was like, this is so cushy. Like, yeah, that's what I'm going to do. Um, but then I had these really cool summer internship opportunities that just opened my eyes to other things. And I thought, well, wait a second. I don't have to just be behind a counter in a CVS or at a grocery store. Like I could actually be like using all of this information that I'm cramming into my brain um, to really like apply myself and, mm -hmm. and to like be a part of the team. And so I came back for my last year of classes, like didactic work after doing an, an internship up in Chicago um, at Mercy Hospital with McKesson, um, which is like a, a really large healthcare company, but they do different levels of contracting, I guess you could say. And so they contracted out to staff that pharmacy in that hospital and they created a um, internship program and they also had a residency. So I got to see what a pharmacy resident could do at a hospital. And I got to see how a clinical pharmacist could interact with the healthcare team. And I came back to school for that last year of classes and A, my grades were amazing. Like I did so well in school. And B, I was like, I need more of this. Like I was then thirsty to like feel that sense of growth. And I knew that a residency could do that for me. Um, and then you go into your fourth year of rotations where you're doing a little bit of retail, you're doing a little bit of hospital and it's a little bit of what, where they can put you in a little bit driven by your interests. And, um, and that just, I mean, talk about a roller coaster of just, I mean, you're distracted in and you're on this like exponential growth, um, you know, that, it was just incredible. And so I knew I needed to continue that projection, um, and, and trajectory for my, for my own professional growth through residency. And that's how I ended up doing two more years. So let's stick with, you talked a lot about your, your college career and coming up in, in phar mm -hmm. pharmacy school, mm -hmm. your struggles, your successes, how you overcame a lot of that stuff. You currently, right now, you're an assistant professor, correct? Mm -hmm. And you're teaching pharmacy students, right? So I, um, when I moved to Asheville, my, the primary role I was taking on was a shared faculty. So because in that fourth year of school, you know, the students need to go out and they need to do, they're called different immersion experiences. And so I was um, an elective immersion experience for fourth year students in the ICU. And that was a partnership with UNC. So that was when I established that um, professorship role with UNC. So I was the first person to ever transition out of a clinical position into a non-clinical position when I moved from the ICU to the manager position that I'm in now. And I reached out to the school and one of, in Asheville, they have a small campus, but, and the original goal when that campus opened was that about 20% of all lectures would actually happen from Asheville and it's never come to fruition. Um, and I think it's for a number of reasons, but mainly in today's curriculum, 
UNC has spent the last four years completely flipping their curriculum. So they are getting um, older students and their curriculum is focused to adult learners. So there's not a ton of lecturing that's happening in the curriculum for the four years. They're getting students into immersion experiences in their first year and not waiting until their fourth year to do it. That seems and good, so right? That seems like it's, a benefit. It's really good. Yeah. And the whole goal was that students that are graduating from UNC are literally already the equivalent of um, people who are halfway through a postgraduate year, right? So they want to sort of get students to graduate at a level that they're calling like 4.5, right? Like it's, um, they're, they're more advanced than other pharmacy schools. I mean, and that's why UNC has been the number one school of pharmacy for the last like six years. I mean, wow. they are just really, um, you know, knocking it out of the park and, and the students, you can tell, I mean, they are just amazing humans. They all are just blow me away. So, so that's, it, that's, that's known kind of probably all over the country. Like if you want to go into pharmacy, UNC is probably, if you can get in there, that's like cream yeah. of the crop, right? UNC is a great school. I mean, yeah. you know, it's the same schools that really sort of hit um, that top notch mark um, year after year. Excuse me. It's like um, Purdue is always in the top 10. Um, Kentucky is always really high up. U, uh, University of Illinois, Chicago has great rapport. Um you know, uh, UNC has a great, uh, you know, is, is established, uh, Ohio state has a great school. A lot of schools in the Midwest are actually really good pharmacy schools. Michigan has a great school as well. Um, so, you know, I mean, there are great schools all over the country. Uh, UCSF has always had a really strong program. So I would say UCSF, Purdue and, and UNC, um, just, from the standpoint of, of rankings always rank very, very high. And part of that is the amount of money that they get for the bench research, right? It's the, it's the true research side of pharmaceuticals that also, I think drives some of that ranking because it's, you know, funding and publishing and some sure. of that stuff. So let's talk about, I wanted to talk about rowing. Yeah. And I wanted to talk about, this is obviously, this is, uh, we talk about leadership. We talk about, talk about followership here. Team dynamics, team sports. Mm -hmm. I've always been a firm believer that that helps with when you, I, I think it translates well, translates well into the workforce, to the work world. Mm -hmm. A lot of different professions when you're working in teams, yeah. small teams, large teams. Purdue, rowing, mm -hmm. maybe not quite as famous as Purdue football or <laughs> Purdue basketball. Yeah, yeah. But talk about your experiences rowing what that taught you some of the lessons maybe you were able to take away yeah. from rowing and you still maybe use today or maybe you don't mm -hmm. but what are your what are your thoughts on that yeah yeah you know um to say that purdue is the largest club rowing program in the country being in the middle of indiana it, it's just it's mind-blowing like it's like it's a, what? Big deal. it's a big deal. It doesn't even make any sense, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, we get out on the Wabash and it's like there's barely even water in, the, in that the Wabash. River. That's what I said. Yeah. The Wabash. Um, but you know, I um I came to Purdue and um and it has a huge Greek system, right? And so 
I sort of, I went in, my mom was in the Greek system. My dad was in the Greek system. My grandparents were in the Greek system. And so that was another one of those things where it was like, well, I'm going to rush in, you know, my first year of school. And that's kind of when that, that all goes out. And so, um, I went home for Christmas break and that was when I really started to realize I was pretty homesick because even though I'd gone to this really big high school and I was kind of ready for something new, um, not having athletics to find a connection or, or a club or something, I really started to realize when I was home that Christmas break and I got to see all my friends from high school, I was really homesick. And, and I, I needed something. And so I was really excited to go back and to rush and to find this group that was going to get my connection, you know, and, and sort of um, scratch that itch for me, right? So I go back and we start doing the rush thing and we're going around. And I, I met a couple of girls during rush who were on the rowing team. And I was like, these chicks are so freaking cool. And I was like, you row? Like, where do you row? Like, what? what does that even mean? You know? Mm. And, and so I was like, well, heck I'm doing that next year. Like I'm going to get through this and we'll figure this thing out. And then I'm going to do that. And I'm going to join that thing. Was and it like so, a hidden secret? Like the rowing team at Purdue is like this like weird hidden secret that it was hard it's to It's not really about? a secret. I just right. don't know if I just, I don't know if I was oblivious or if I wasn't paying attention because like they would recruit in the spring and, and you'd go set up boats, right? Because you'd walk by an eight-man shell and you're like, what is that thing? Like, it's, I mean, it's like Gigantic. eight feet long or something. Yeah. It's something crazy, right? And right. so I'm like, I don't know how I missed that, but I never saw the boat thing. Um, so I rushed, got into a sorority, um, you know, come back after, after summer and um, figure out when, you know, when the call out is to go and learn more about the rowing team. And I'm like, sign me up. And I was like, I'm going to row. Like, I want to, I want to be fit. I, you know, I miss just the physical activity related to sports. I, um, in high school, I was, you know, I was a, uh, I lettered 12 seasons, right? Like in school, in high school. So every season I got a letter. Um, but almost all of those were team sports with an individual aspect, if that makes sense. Right. So I was on the swim team, I was on the cross country team and I was on the track team. Totally makes sense. Yep. So there's a team, but it's like driven by the individuals. Right. right. So it's like just a bunch of separate parts that, yeah. Right? yeah. You know, yes. so you're, you're rooting for your team and like on relays, right. It's a, a collaborative practice, but like it all depends on each individual doing their part. So, so I'm like, I'm going to go, I'm going to row. And so, uh, and one of the girls I had met during rush, she had said, now you're kind of short. So watch out. They'll try and make you a coxswain. And she was like, all you got to do is wreck the boat once. And then they won't make you do that anymore. <laughs> you did. Did you say what is a coxswain? Or did you know at that point? <laughs> no, I had no idea. <laughs> no but she was like, they don't even get to row. And I was like, oh my gosh. Was like, that's the whole point. Right. Right. So for the first like several weeks, I was like hiding behind the really tall girls so that I wouldn't get picked as a coxswain um, because I, I wanted to row. Like I wanted to do that, that physical aspect of it. Um, and then, I mean, you can only hide behind people for so long and then obviously they're going to like find me and right. I'm only five feet tall. So um, obviously I was not. I, even in the attempts to rowing, I was not matching other people's strokes because I was so much shorter than them. Right. Yeah. Um, 
And so they put me in the coxswain seat. And of course, I'm not going to wreck like a. So you were a natural fit for the coxswain position? I was, you know, yeah. it just, it did kind of make sense. And so um, I would prefer to face forward in a boat anyway. So it's fine, probably. Yeah, I'm trying to think people out there who don't know anything about rowing. Because I honestly, and obviously until I knew my wife, I had yeah. no idea that it's seven facing the opposite way and then the cockpit is facing, or eight, yeah, yeah eight, eight rowers. And yeah. then you're actually facing the way you guys are supposed to be going. Yeah, but I'm in the well, back. But right? you're in the back. I'm in the yeah. stern. The strangest thing if you have no, no idea about rowing. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so in the coxswain, you know, they are... Um, they are sort of, they're, they're the eyes of the boat. Um, you, you are the one in control of the rudder. Um, so really fine movements are controlled by the coxswain in, in rowing. Um, and also like you're the one that is basically helping to execute the race plan, right? So the person that sits right in front of you is considered the stroke seat. And so Jess was my stroke as, as novices. So Jess right. and I went out for the rowing team the same year. Our, we're both sophomores. Um, and so she ended up my stroke seat and that's the person that really sets the, the pace, the tempo for everybody else. Um, we have a little thing in front of us that is reading the stroke count. So because there's a magnet in the bottom of their seat that's going over a magnetic strip that's transmitting to that. So I could tell how many strokes per minute they were rowing at. And that also then connects to a microphone and then their speakers. So I have a microphone and I can talk to everybody in the boat because they can hear me through the speakers. I did not know that. Yeah. So, you know, so you're watching too, because it's like, if you're starting to list to one side, well, I could look and see, and I knew maybe my, you know, four seat was digging a little too deep or was popping out early. And so you would call people out. You'd say, Hey, Sally Sue, you know, I need you to lift up. I need you to, you know, or to hang on a little bit longer um, so that people are truly rowing in unison so that you can really optimize your, you know, your efficiency and how right. fast you're, you're moving through the water. So, so it ended up being super cool in, you know, being in that position. And I will tell you that I don't know truly that there is any team sport as dependent on the whole as rowing because if one person is out of sync if one person is early or late it can throw everything off you know and so i mean and you could have it you could be having a terrible day and you could go out on the water and the lightweight rowers they always want to show off right because you've got the heavyweights and you've got the lightweights and the heavyweights are just muscle and size and inertia right they just they can just rip through the water and they always go super fast and so then the lightweights is there a mix all, of both on the same boat um for practice you could do both and like yeah. a lot of times you know the person who's sitting in the bow seat all the way at the end is usually a smaller person the biggest person in the in the boat is like the fifth and sixth seats gotcha. um the most agile and sort of aware rowers are usually your, your seven and your eight, your stroke and the person that's right behind this, um, right behind the stroke seat. So, um, so boats could be mixed, but like in, in men's rowing and, and in like uh, varsity women's rowing, you do, you have heavyweights and you have lightweights. So the lightweights are a hundred percent dependent on their technique, right? Because it has to be super clean because they've got to 
move and they don't have the mass right. to just kind of sh- muscle through it, right? It's finet maybe technique over force, like brute force. Right? Yeah, right. yeah. And so um, the the lightweights always just it was just this beautiful thing to experience because they technically were such strong rowers. Um, and so you could get out on the water and you have to sort of work out the kinks and everybody's got to warm up and, and you always wanted to sort of like end the day or find that moment where everyone was just clicking their oars exactly at the same time. And you could like get them to hold as they flip their oars out and just glide. Right. And everybody's oars are up on the, off the water and the boat is just stable as can be. And, you know, and then everybody drops their oars at the same time. And it almost would like echo across the river. And it was just like the cool, it was like the essence of team sport. So highly visual, what you're talking mm-hmm. about, I can, I'm visioning as you're talking about it. It seems like there's a lot of metaphors that could carry over mm-hmm. into healthcare profession, team dynamics. Yeah. Do you see parallels that, that transfer? Do you notice, do you try to use anything or use those metaphors or visuals, whatever? Does it work? I don't know. I think from really from the coxswain seat, one of the things that I realized is that what motivated one person could have completely turned off the next, right? That is, that is awesome. That's cool. And so, you know, I mean, I could look Jess in the eye and I could be like, you need to pick up the pace, right? And, and she was willing to hear a hard message. I could be like, you look like shit. figure it out. Right. Right. Like you're late, you're popping out early and you know, you're digging too deep. And I could just say what it was person, two seats behind her. If I'm like, Lisa, pick it up. She'd, she'd be mad. She'd be back there crying. She'd just (laughs) stop rowing. And you're like, Oh my gosh. You know? So I think that from that seat, it helped me understand that I needed to understand how to motivate people because not everybody is motivated by the same thing. Right. And it helps you give better feedback and feedback that people are going to listen to. Um, because you know, some people, it, it needs to be a little bit sugarcoated. You need to ease them into it. You need to let them self-assess like, how do you think that row went? (laughs) How do you think that presentation went? You know? Um, so I think that a lot of those skills that I learned over the four years in the coxswain seat have translated to the work that I've done more on the, um, maybe more on the education side, but I mean, like even, even as, what do you mean on the education side? Are you talking students? Yeah, just with yeah. all of the student and like pharmacy resident learners that I've interacted with, where those are the people I'm really giving a lot of feedback to. Right. But um, it helped it helped me learn how to approach conversations. And I think that, um, you know, being a pharmacist in an ICU, um, especially a surgical ICU, surgeons are special. I have a lot of very dear friends that are surgeons, but... Um, you so know, if they hear you say that, they're going to be like, yes, we are. We are yes. Special. Yeah, they know. They know. Um, you know, but like, I also think that I wasn't afraid to raise my voice and to get things done. And, hey, I don't know why you're sitting down right now. We're loading the trailer. We've got to be home in three hours, you know. And so. Were you that like that of- before you became a coxswain or did a coxswain, becoming a coxswain, bring that out? 
in you or help you develop that? I mean, I definitely think I've always been a little bit bossy. Assertive. More you classify yourself more assertive, right? Yeah. 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 But, um, it was, it was, I think it was having like the coxswains on the team are responsible for getting the trailer out of the, you know, out of the boathouse and getting it back to the boathouse. And so we had to make sure that the crews were doing what need what needed to happen to mm-hmm. get the trailer loaded so we could roll out and get home or get to a race. And so So it's not like the Purdue football team where they have people that do all this? No. <laughs> yep, nope. It was a club. So it yeah, was, it was you know, club. we were raising money to be able to go. If it was like if we weren't racing, we were fundraising. So right. So I think that's fascinating. Being the coxswain, you you were talking about having to motivate others, trying to figure out what actually works, mm-hmm. what motivates this person, what doesn't motivate this person. Mm-hmm. What about yourself? Was it more you had to? Was it self motivation? You had to rely on the co. I mean, how did that work? Because you're yeah. right. How did that work? A little bit, you know. But you you also feed off the people around you, you know. Um, my um, second to last year of rowing, um, which was actually Jess's last year on the team, that was a that was a really that was a rough year, and I think she would admit that that was a rough year for us in the rowing world because um, Jess had made it to the varsity um, boat. I had already been a part of the bar- varsity boat the year before, and then with sort of the change in dynamics as the seniors left and people came up. Um, I ended up in the JV boat and, um, and it was, it was just, it was a mixed bag. It was not the, it was not the strongest rowers on the team. And it was, it was frustrating and it was sad, but I was like, at the same time, like what's going to motivate this group? Because if I'm sit- sitting here in this seat and all I'm doing is projecting my frustration that I'm in this seat, like that's not going to help them. Right. Yeah. And so it was finding the common ground that got us all going. And if they all wanted to be mad, then I could feed off of that because I was a little bit mad. But right. if that wasn't what was going to work for them, then I wasn't going to do that, you know. Yeah. And um, and we ended up we ended up like doing pretty good in some races, you know. And and it 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 all worked out okay. Um, but you know, I think I had to. I definitely recognize even today that um, I can very much be impacted by the people around me. And I wish for good for better or for worse. Yeah. 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 I wish sometimes I could turn that off um, and be a little bit more aware of it um, at the time. But, um, but I also think that as a, as a leader, that that is a lot of times how that's that awareness of what's going on around you is how you find ways to motivate people. Sure. Yeah, totally. Do you believe in intrinsic motivation, like from a, from a leadership standpoint, like in your teams now, do you believe that there's obviously, you know, pretty much any business has their external motivators, whether it's incentives or just time off or whatever. Mm -hmm. But do you believe that people have to, even the people that work with you have to find some sort of self motivation or something that drives them intrinsically? Do you believe in intrinsic motivation? I do. Yeah. I think it's uh, to think about the people that I work with. It's um, it's fascinating to sort of um, 
put a face to that, I guess, right. and think about my in, impression of what I think motivates people um, and how they apply that motivation. Right. You know, is, is really interesting. I mean, I think that there are some people that truly just show up every day because of the paycheck. Yeah. And, um, and they're not necessarily even excited or motivated to, to do any of it. It's just that this is getting them their paycheck and paying their bills. The other feedback that I have gotten from people since I have been in this position as a leader, and I absolutely do not want this to sound like I'm good at this and somebody else is not good at this because I don't know that I'm doing any of this right. Sure. But I absolutely want to remain available to the people who report directly to me. And I think that that is something that is so important to me. And it's not that I'm at all micromanaging them, but I want to be able to check in with them. And I want them to know that if they send me a message or they have an issue, that I will do my best to address it and help however I can. And I think that some of my colleagues over time have just gotten buried in all of the things that they're doing and they are unreachable and unresponsive. And so like I will even receive emails from people that are not my direct reports asking a question that falls somewhat within my wheelhouse, but, and it's not necessarily me making a decision about something that would be kind of, out of my lane per se. Um, and hearing back from them that they're just appreciative that I emailed them back within a day because they've never gotten a response. That's crazy. And so that I think is, is something that I hope will continue to help drive some of that intrinsic motivation. Cause I think that some of my staff are incredible. They are brilliant brilliant people. And I think when they started at the hospital under different leadership, they came in very eager to make a big impact. And some of that eagerness has just died off over time. And I think part of that was due to a lack of connection and a lack of support to funnel that eagerness into something, you know? And so I don't know if they're all lost causes at this point or, Um, if some of them will sort of reignite some of that excitement with some changes that we could potentially implement, but that's something that I find important as a leader to better understand, like what, what really is going to excite folks and and keep them there. Right. Because we're dealing with a ton of turnover right now and it's, it's painful. It's, it's crippling the department and it's, um, I mean, it's overwhelming to me because I'm having to work to help hire new people and to train new people. And, um, and I deal with the schedule, right. For the pharmacist. So then we're backfilling shifts. And so my, the entire day shift staff over the last three months has worked night shift. And historically that would be something that a staff member would maybe have to do once a year. And we're already going through our staff for the second full round in three months. So it's, it's a lot. It's a lot. Yeah. It's a lot for everybody to take at all levels. Right. 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 Yeah. And there's definitely, you know, I think from a leadership standpoint there, you can definitely motivate. There are things you can do to motivate others, but you can also demotivate in the environment 
that people are within can be a demotivating environment. Right. It's just like you said, lack of responsiveness. It's probably not a lot of the cases. It's probably not because someone is intentionally not responding. Right. It's just, they are so bogged down in other things. Yeah. It doesn't matter what the reason is. Lack of response, responsiveness is going to have effect on people. Right. So, yeah, that's tough. I mean, it's, I, you know, I think I always say too, it's like the bigger the organization is too, the more moving parts, the more processes, you know, it's just, it can be tough. It's yeah. Really tough. Right. Let's talk about, I'm a big fan of technical competence. Okay. I, it is my, it's one of my probably fundamental assumptions about leadership is that leadership credibility, manager credibility flows from technical competence. Mm -hmm. And the more technically competent you are in your craft, mm -hmm. mastery of craft, the more people will gravitate towards you mm -hmm. from, from a leadership perspective. Do you agree mm -hmm. with that? Do you, what do you feel about, because you're in a very highly specialized mm -hmm. field. Yeah. High risk, high reward, right? I think yeah. I wrote that in one of the questions. I'm like, it was a question, but I'm pretty positive. You're very high risk, high reward. Right, right. Talk about technical competence, the importance mm -hmm. to leadership, managers. Yeah. It's all yours. Yeah. You know, I, I have worked, I can think of a manager that I had early on at Hopkins who um, did not have technical competence per se. And she was actually a fantastic leader. That's awesome. And, and part of it, I think, was her honest recognition that she could not come out and do my job or their job or their job, but she would do absolutely everything in her power to support the requests that we had and to understand what it was that we were asking for or what we needed. And so that was eye-opening to me. Because the flip side is, especially in pharmacy, right, is that there are two tracks to leadership in my mind. There are the people who take the track like I did, right? I started at the, at the bedside. I started at ground zero. I did the additional training. I worked in that space, became very familiar and comfortable with that, and decided that I was like ready for something different or something new and, and really felt like moving into a leadership position was going to give me some, it was going to feed that hunger for something different while keeping me in the realm of something that I knew, right? It was going to keep Your me technical in the technical field, right? Your yeah. technical field, yeah. Um, and, and I had enough leadership experience that I felt like I could build upon that, even though I was like, I might be getting in over my head because I don't have anything in that like kind of business training and that like official capacity for leadership curriculum. Right. Right. Well, then the other path that a lot that that people take to get to leadership positions, at least in pharmacy, is they go the admin route. So you can graduate from pharmacy school and you can go sign up for a two year admin residency. We have one admission and it's a two year program. It's usually a, it's affiliated with a school that will allow them to get a master's degree in uh, either an MPH, an MS. That's a lot of times in like a business, like what, what our residents, excuse me, I'm drinking bubble water and yeah. it's giving me the hiccups. Carbonation. Um, our residents are getting an MS from UNC, but it is a, it's a master's of science in 
pharmacy administration, like it is run by the pharmacy um, faculty. So it's a very unique program, but it's aligning them to be able to go and be a director of pharmacy or an operator. To be an administrator. To be an administrator. Yeah. 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 So I might offend some people, but I'm going to say it anyway. Most people that decide to take that track recognize that they're not cut out for the clinical side, right? Because they don't have the technical piece. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. It's either they don't, they don't have it or they're not interested in it. Right. Right. And so we desperately try to make the first year of that residency as clinically um, oriented as we possibly can. So like our first year of that residency looks exactly like the residency that I manage, except for one rotation is different and that's it. So they're immersed into 10 learning experiences. Um, Six of them are defined for my residents. Seven of them are defined for that first year admin resident because they have to do one extra month of management. But otherwise the year is supposed to look exactly the same. But I can tell you after years of precepting these residents, they just clinically are not as strong as the rest of the uh, as the rest of the residents because they're also working on their master's degree in administration. And I think in the back of their mind, they're like, I'm not ever really going to do this. Right. They're like, I'm going to dabble, but I'm not diving in, you know? And so, so you figure, right. You end up with these two different groups that are working side by side. Right. So I work with people who have come from both directions of that. Um, as we have had some turnover even in our leadership group and there has been the possibility of shifting responsibilities, you know, I do have some operational responsibilities and I like that I understand and I have a grasp on operations, but it's not my passion, right? My passion is really on the clinical side of things. And so there was, I, I had told some of my teams, I was like, you know, there's a possibility that things might get shuffled around a little bit. And I'm just not exactly sure like where the cards are going to fall. And I just wanted you guys to know. And literally they're like, this is ridiculous. You should, why would you not be the clinical manager of everybody? And because they recognize that translation. I mean, and there's something about that that's super it's fulfilling still, right? I mean, my ED team, um, I'll go down and and talk with them in the ER and I'll just pop down there and see what's going on. And, you know, a great example is um, we have a drug that you can use to stop bleeding. And it's for people who are on blood, specific blood thinners. And so they come in from a car accident and they're bleeding, right? You give them this drug and it basically reverses the action of that blood thinner and hopefully prevents them from dying, right? right? So crazy expensive. You don't want to mess up making it. High right? risk, high reward. And every box, because it's a, you know, it's um, made from human um, clotting factors. So right. every box has a different amount of clotting factor. And so you need to know exactly what the box says. So you really need the box in front of you. So they said, can we put this down in the ER? So we had to come up with a process for how we were going to do this. And we started looking into it. We talked to some other places that were doing it. And so we made a plan and we're like, okay, we're going live with this, you know, and so we're going to do some training. And so I'm, I'm down in the ER. We've put it in the ER and 
a patient comes in that needs it. And, and, I'm and you done haven't with, done any training yet? And we haven't done it. Yeah. And we're like, we're going to do it. And I was like, right. let's do it. Let, let's do it. Yeah. So I've got a box and one of the other pharmacists has a box and we're opening it and we're, we're reading the instructions together. And we're you guys like, are jacked. You guys are yeah. jacked. Yeah. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is so great. We're going to do this. And, and we did it. And then we could tell that story and we could like lay out the step by step. And then we could go and we could teach all of our colleagues. And, um, you know, and after the fact, like a lot of people are like, that was so cool that like you were there. Like you helped do it. You know, you weren't afraid to jump in, you know? Yeah. I mean, if my team is in the middle of something and I'm sitting there and their phone rings, I'm, I'll answer it. Right. Yeah. Like if it's a patient, You're not afraid to get end, your hands dirty. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think that that goes a long way with staff. Credibility. Yeah. Totally. Trust. Yeah. You know, it's like if I, if I'm walking through the, if I have to walk through the pharmacy because I'm on the way to the bathroom and the phones are ringing or there's a pile of meds that need to be checked, like, oh, let me grab a pen. Like, where's the pen? Can I check right. these for you guys? Like, where do these need to go? You know, we've been dealing with um, a lot of integration for technology at the hospital. So we utilize uh, pneumatic tube systems to transport meds around the hospital. It's kind of like um, when you go like to the, the banks? bank machine. Yeah. 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 That's crazy. So those tubes go all over the hospital, right? Yeah. So they were integrating them onto the HCA server. And so they were down in zones. So there would be an entire zone that you couldn't send any tubes to. And so, um, you know, we got a message and it was like, Hey, there are a lot of medications that need to go to all these different places. And so I just, you know, run into the pharmacy and load up my arms and I'll be back in a little while, you guys, you know, and, um, come back down and let's see what else we've got, you know, and it, it, it does, it goes a long way. It does. With that's, staff. that's one of those. I mean, I'm not always a big fan of like telling, I don't, I don't like to tell other people how to lead, but those, that's one of those easy ones. It's like, don't be afraid to roll your sleeve up and just mm -hmm. get down in the trenches with the people that work with you. They're going to see that. I mean, that's going to go so far. Yeah. You know, it's just, yeah. it's just not, it's not the rule, unfortunately. You right. Know, a lot of people don't do it for whatever yeah. reason. You, uh, when you were offered the management position mm -hmm. at Mission Hospital, were, were you prepared? Did you feel prepared? No. Two different, two different questions. Yeah. Yeah. Were you, you prepared? Like in, th in, in practice, in practice mm -hmm. were, were you prepared? Like when you got on the job, you're like, okay, I can do this, but maybe leading up to it, you're like, nah, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. That's fair. That's fair. Yeah. I, I was, I think I was more prepared than, than I gave myself credit for. I mean, but still, I mean, even today, right. There, like, we have just, we have over defined things and like we have written over years, so many policies, so yeah. many procedures, so many SOGs, so many SOPs, what's the difference between the SOG and SOP? <laughs> like, come on. Like, I don't even, I, I read it somewhere at one point in time when I do that FEMA training, right. but I can't even remember now. Like, and so, I mean, I just sit there and I'm like, oh my gosh, like I'm a manager and I'm supposed to manage people. And half the time somebody comes and asks me a question. I'm like, you don't have the answer. Yeah, I have no idea how, what we're yeah. supposed to do. Or you're just, just as dumbfounded as they are. Right? Yeah. Or I tell somebody to do something wrong because I'm like, well, I haven't had to do that in six years. Like, um, I'm not really sure, but 
this is how we did it six years ago. And, you know, and since then we've gone through an acquisition and like just a lot of processes have changed. And so I think that was, you know, that was like the other big, um, gray zone for me, I guess, or maybe it would even be like a red, like danger zone is I was making the decision about whether or not I was going to make this transition right after mission had announced that they were going to be acquired. And so I was like, is middle management where you want to be (laughs) in the middle of a gigantic, you know, millions and millions of dollar acquisition. Sure. Sure. You know, and, and really in my mind, Tim, maybe it was like, I don't know if it was a good attitude to go in with or not, but I thought, you know what, if I can get a year, 18 months of experience under my belt and then they whack my job, like I'm not so far removed from the bedside that I couldn't go back. Sure. And yet I've got 18 months of management under my belt. So maybe I could find another management job somewhere. Check that box. (laughs) Check the management box. (laughs) (laughs) So I just kind of thought, you know what, like, let's see where this takes me. And, yeah. um, how have you evolved from when, from when you first became a manager to mm-hmm. now, what, mm-hmm. what's that transition been like? Has it been like this transcendence? I mean, or do you still feel like every day, something new, I'm learning <laughs> yeah. something new every day. Yeah. It's a grind. I always say leadership and management, just grind. It you is a grind. Is, it's a grind. You yeah. know, and it's, so I actually, um, I, this in January participated in a, in a fun group. It was a, with a guy that I knew from Baltimore, who was a coach at the gym that we went to. And so he is really big crossfitter. Dr. Harris is a big crossfitter. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so the Jeff Blake, I want to shout him out. He is huge into gratitude. And so he runs, um, a blog and, um, called the gratitude jar. And so, but then he's also into personal training and, um, life coaching and some stuff like that. So, so it was a small group and every day you had, he posted a video and it was like some different exercises to do and focused on abs and glutes and some fun stuff and, and just sort of getting yourself moving. And then he, you know, the requirement was that every day you needed to post on there. Um, something that you were grateful for the story that you were telling yourself and then sort of check in and be honest about like what movements you had done and like what exercises you had done. And that month of gratitude, I think it's like, I mean, it's just so eye opening, right? Because we can, we can get into this grind and, and you just are just buried in it. And, and the human mind wants to focus on the negative for some reason. And so you come home and you're exhausted and you're like, yeah, so-and-so is just killing me or this process is so frustrating or X, Y, and Z. And by the end of every day, I was on that post and I was thinking, what was I grateful for today? You know, and sometimes it had nothing to do with work, but it just sort of helped change my mind, my mindset as I was laying down but a lot of times it was something, it was something related to work because I spend more than half my waking hours at work, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, I mean, I have definitely evolved since I started in this job. Um, I have built a great relationship with a couple of my colleagues and, 
um, I just, I have great respect for them and, and what they have done. I mean, cause they have been in these positions for a long time. Um, but I've also, I have realized that I am, uh, such a proponent for change and it's not because I think something is broken. It's because I always think it could be better. Yeah. And I'm not necessarily think coming at it from the attitude that like the grass is greener. I'm just thinking like, there's a more efficient way to do this, a more effective way to do this so that people around me will be happier and more impactful. And so I love to brainstorm these ideas about how we could change something and improve something. And, and then I want to jump in and I want to try it and get feedback to figure out like, did it work? (laughs) Well, and that, can probably lead nicely into my next area that I want to talk about. You're talking about, so you're not a fan of the status quo, not no. a fan of the status quo, just because that's the way we've always done it. Doesn't mean we need to keep doing that way. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just, Oh yeah, no, I know I, it's frustrating. Mm-hmm. I, all of the service lines you manage, you manage a few mm-hmm. service lines, right? Yeah. Can you talk, can you talk about what it means to manage a service line and then talk about the processes that go into that, because there's probably a lot of different processes mm-hmm. that people will have to manipulate. They're responsible for. Mm-hmm. You have people making policies about processes that maybe should not be. Mm-hmm. Right? And I say this just in general sense, because any large bureaucracy is going to be like that, even small. Talk about the service line aspect and processes. Mm-hmm. And yeah. So to understand like the, the service line concept, right. And I feel like I need to explain to you sort of the opposite because it, it'll make more sense. Mm -hmm. Um, so when I was at Hopkins, um, I got hired in as the surgical ICU clinical specialist. So I was in this bucket of people that were clinical specialists, but I was the only one responsible for my space. If I was away for a day because I was sick or I was on PTO or as a conference or whatever, um, no one specific was designated to backfill my position. Um, There were other pharmacists around who could potentially help answer some questions. But unless I was truly like out of the country and like out of pocket, like bereavement, like I was like, I'm disconnecting. I need I need time away. I had a pager and a phone and I was available a hundred percent of the time. Right. Right. Um, and so that was what I would consider a tiered system. So like I had my space, no one backfilled me. There was a pharmacist that was assigned to my area and a couple other areas that would verify orders for that space. So I didn't dispense any medications. I didn't verify any medication orders. I was there to, review patient charts, very in depth, go on patient rounds, which is bed to bed with the medical team that was made up of a lot of surgery residents, anesthesia, anesthesia residents, critical care fellows, and either a surgeon or an anesthesiologist, which were the attendings. And so I was the, the pharmacist, right? And then I did a lot of teaching of all of these, you know, medical learners to say, this is why you're going to pick this drug over this drug that, you know, no, there's literature that says this is better than this option. Or 
actually, we're going to do this drug because it's cheaper and it is just the same in, in Mm -hmm. efficacy, you know? And so I came to mission and it was sort of, it's always discussed in, um, in mission world as a single tiered system. So their approach is that a pharmacist is a pharmacist is a pharmacist, but you still have these specialized areas, right? And you've got people who have interests that fall into these areas. So you hire in people to a service line, but they don't have a space that they own. So I got hired into critical care and I could have worked in any of the um, three adult ICUs. There's two medical surgical ICUs and then there was one neurotrauma ICU. And then that team also takes care of the neurotrauma step down. So I could have been in any of those areas for any period of time, day by day, week by week, it can bounce around. So, um, so each service line, depending on how many spots they staff on the schedule is in, and how many areas they cover somewhat dictates how many people are in that, um, in that team. What separates in just a general sense, mm-hmm. the effective teams, maybe the highly effective teams from the dysfunctional ones. Mm-hmm. What are mm-hmm. some just, I don't know, what comes to mind? Like, like I said, you've seen so many teams, like in, in like I said, huge healthcare systems, mm-hmm. a lot of processes. Right. What do you think are some things that kind of separate the, the ones that are really effective from the ones that maybe not dysfunctional, maybe that's a bad word, just mm-hmm. not very efficient? Not effective. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Does that make sense? Is that question yeah, fair? Yeah. Is that fair? It is. I, I think that in my experiences, the there just may general, be just general, three, general. Sense. Yeah. yeah, I think there are three factors. I think leadership. I think resources, mm. and I think the people. Yeah. Right. I, I mean. Like because the the team has to find some level of cohesiveness to work to work together, right? And I mean, one bad apple can just really set the whole thing off, right? I mean, that's true. You know, like I said, we've had some attrition and and it's been hard to see some people go. It has not been hard to see other people go. Sure. And you know, uh, you hate to like, I mean, I, 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 I have come to realize that I am replaceable. <laughs> we all are. Right. Yep. Um, and I think that we're all useful, but none of us are necessary. Yeah, One of my favorite right? That's right. Like they will find, they will find someone else with a pulse to take my job. If, sure. if that's what someone decides has to happen, you know? And so, but I also think to walk around and make demands and, create turmoil and drama and stress um, is no way to approach a workplace, Mm. you know? And um, I mean, we had an employee who was trying to make some demands and was basically like, well, if this doesn't happen, then I'm leaving. And I I mean, it wasn't the demands, (laughs) but I was hearing about it and I was like, right. Can I yeah. help you pack? Like, sure. yeah. a lot I of places would do that. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I was, um, so I just finished listening to, um, after Atlas shrugged, then I listened to, um, extreme ownership. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's two Navy seals. Um, 
and I actually, I thought it was great. Um, somebody else in my house was like, Oh, yeah, <laughs> these guys are so arrogant, but I actually thought that they did a great job consistently talking about how none of their stories were about them. Um, they were about them because they were there and they were their, their stories, but it was all about the team and how the team worked together. The higher purpose. Yeah. And so one of their examples, it was about, um, gosh, I'm not even going to be able to think of what the, the chapter was, but what was great was that now these guys are out of the Navy SEALs and they're doing consulting work, mostly with like corporations and stuff. And they'll come in and they'll, they'll sit with different leaders, different staff members, and try to start to figure out like where some of the disconnect is. And the example that they were talking about was um, a, a manager who basically had um, two people in like that were in leadership positions on like sales teams and they did not get along. And so it had finally come to a head and they were each basically saying, it's official. I cannot work with this other person. They must be fired or I'm going to leave. And it was in some sort of competitive world where if, if that the fear was, is if that person left, then they would take their entire sales force with them. And then it would just leave the company really in a bad spot. And so these guys happen to be there doing their consulting thing. And they're asking this manager who's in the middle of this, like, what are you going to do? And, and she says, well, I'm just going to sit back and I'm going to see how it plays out because I can't make a decision. Like they've put me in a terrible position. And the guy said, yeah, you can. And she was like, well, what decision would that be? And he said, fire both of them. And she was kind of like, and he, and he said, do you think there are people who would step up? Do you think that people are really following this behavior? Right. Right. And she sort of took that pause and was like, oh, snap. And ultimately decided to fire both of them. Wow. And so, I mean, you know, and I was like, that is such a good example because you just, you can't, you can't let negativity run through. And, you know, it's, I think, especially when it comes to threats and demands that are a request for special treatment. Right. Like that yeah. for me is like where I'm like, no. well, and then other people see that too. And they're just, everybody's turned off. And then if yeah. you give into, if you're the manager and you give into that, then it's just, right. I mean, you set yourself up for a whole nother mm -hmm. level of nonsense. Yeah. Right, so. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and there's like, there's always going to be this um, possible sense of unfairness. And, you know, I think it's that fine line of like oversharing right. about a situation, but like making sure that people know, like, I, I can understand and I can see what you're seeing. Um, but please understand that like the, that like this, this, there is a situation yeah. that is being addressed and like you are not in fact being treated unfairly or someone right. else is not being treated in some sort of, you know, yeah, a lot of times they, they don't always have the whole picture yeah, you know, and they're making judgments based off snippets mm -hmm. of randomly selected information. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And they're just plugging in the story that like, right. they're filling them. in the gaps, right. And mm -hmm. making assumptions. And then next thing you know, you know, the boss doesn't care about us, but cares about this person more. Yeah. 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 No, I hear you. I am, I am mindful of your time. We've been going for about an hour and a half. You're on the East coast, three hours <laughs> ahead of me. 
I have one final question. We may have to do this again. We may have to do this and do another podcast because I have questions I left on the table. Okay. And there's other things I want to ask at another point. Sure. But I want I want to talk one. I want to ask you, do you have any, are there any leadership C stories that you have mm-hmm. in the healthcare world? One moment, mm-hmm. defining moment that stood out. And it doesn't necessarily mean you have to be a leader. Maybe it's a followership story mm-hmm. or whatever. Mm-hmm. Is there one thing over your career that kind of was really impactful for you? Mm-hmm. You have mm-hmm. anything like that? Gosh. I really liked when you talk about the mentor you had at John mm-hmm. Hopkins. That was awesome because mm-hmm. you threw you threw my mental model off one of the assumptions I had about technical competence mm-hmm. being mm-hmm. an absolute requirement. And then yeah. you, you come through and like, no, I had this person who wasn't necessarily yeah. technically, that was one like top, I mean, top three moments already is because I always go back and do like a postmortem analysis, right. Of what <laughs> I talked about and how I deepened my understanding of what we, yeah. what I learned and, that that shook me a little bit. I'm not going to lie. That was mm-hmm. one of my fundamental assumptions in the leadership mm-hmm. world was mm-hmm. the technical competence. So yeah, I, I appreciate that. I, I really valued that, yeah. that little yeah. nugget there. It was huge. Little nugget. So, you know, um, I, oh gosh, I don't know. I mean, I, I think that there have been a lot of, a lot of really amazing people that I have worked with. And yeah. you know, it's funny. I mean, one of my very first mentors coming out of school in my first year of residency, um, she was incredible, like as a mentor and as a preceptor. Um, I heard that she went on to be a director and I sort of cringed. I was like, I don't know if like how well that's going to work out, like because she was a bit intimidating and very intense. Um you know, but I, I, what, one of the things I learned from her and I learned in my interactions with her is like, she was really trying to push me to put graphics onto a poster for a project that we were working on. And, and I was like sitting there and I was like, I don't understand what these graphics are representing and I don't feel comfortable putting them on there. And I just was like losing sleep over it. And finally, like one of my, um, she was a friend and she was another mentor. Um, and, and she said, you know what, like, this is your poster and you're going to be the one that's presenting it. And so if you don't understand it, then I think that you need to, you need to make a final decision because you need to submit your final work. And so I, I took them out and I went back to my mentor and I was like, she's going to be so mad at me and this and that. And I just said, I needed to represent this data differently because I need to be able to speak to it. And I don't want you to be mad at me, but like, I just need to do this. And, I feel like that professionally was like one of my very first like tough conversations where I had to like stand up for myself, you know, and I think that I have been able to carry that through, um, especially now being in this position. I mean, um, I've had to terminate a couple of people and it's not something that you ever want to do. And, you know, and when I took this position, I had one person that was under me that was a supervisor and he was in charge of all of the technicians that were working in the emergency department doing medication histories. Well, he decided to leave and, um, and, and you know, pursue um, a job out west. And so all of the technicians then reported directly to me. And we really um, debated on whether or not it was necessary to have a supervisor position to manage them. 
And so I was like, you know what, I'll just, I'll manage them for a while and we'll kind of decide what we're going to do. And I start to get into this workflow and just the dynamic of the team, which was a disaster. And a bunch of them, I mean, it's like a bunch of tardies, a bunch of no call, no shows. And like, I'm like, I got to put every single one of these folks into corrective action right now. But like, if I don't do this and they don't recognize that like there is a standard for your behavior and you're a professional and you need to be punctual, then like I'm going to get walked all over. Right. Right. And so it's like, I'm literally putting somebody into corrective action and they're in their first level of corrective action. Setting the tone, setting the tone (laughs) to be fired. But I'm like, I can't just straight up fire you. You know, we've got to progress through this thing. But, um, but, you know, I, I did, I, I felt like I needed to set the tone and yeah. make sure that, you know, people knew that they were going to be held accountable. Um, and, and it's like, there, there were days when you're like, God, I just don't, I don't want to do this today. Right. But if I don't do it today, I have to do it tomorrow. And it's not going it, away. Yeah. It's not going so away. So you just take a deep breath and. Yeah. Take your business, you know. I any final thoughts? Any last alibis before we close it out? I don't think so. No. No. I I again I am grateful for your time. Thank you. I am grateful for the the nuggets of wisdom that you <laughs> I learned a lot about the pharmacy world, which I was yeah. really excited to do, the technical side of it too. Yeah. And then just I, I just know Man, I know hospitals are just, there's so many moving parts and Mm -hmm. just so many systems and processes and things that have to work smoothly together or they don't work smoothly together. And Mm -hmm. I know it's always a challenge no matter where you're at. And probably small hospitals have their own challenges. The big hospitals don't Mm -hmm. and vice versa. Mm -hmm. Right. I'd like to do this again sometime if you don't mind. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Let's do it. I I would like to talk more about the education. I would like to talk to more, talk more about the, the mentorship side on sure. the education yeah. side, mm-hmm. because I think there's a difference between leading and mentoring. I think maybe there's right. some overlap, right? If mm-hmm. it was a Venn diagram, but yeah. um, I know you do a lot of the world of, of education and, mm-hmm. you know, bringing up, you know, young pharma- pharmaceutical doctors and, yeah, you know, they do great things. So yeah, let's do that again sometime. Yeah, let's do it. Dr. Harris, it has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Um, remember, Leadosophy is about using the tools of philosophical thought to deepen our understanding of leadership. Thanks for watching. We'll see you next time. Thanks for watching and listening to another episode of Leadosophy. If you liked what you heard today, hit that subscribe button and check out leadosophy.com and learn more about Tim's ideas on philosophy and leadership. We'll see you next time.